Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are tonight moving into the next little passage of Paul's letter to the church of God in Corinth. The church, as we have seen, has been struggling with worldliness. They had forgotten who they were in the gospel, forgotten who they were called to be, and subsequently had let worldly patterns infiltrate the church. It had become contaminated with sin. And so, like a loving father, God is using Paul to point out the sin in the Corinthian church so that it might be excised. In chapter 5, Paul had pointed out to the church their sin of tolerating sexual sin in their midst. They had let a, a situation persist that was so egregious, so blatantly wrong, that even the pagans wouldn't have put up with it. They had missed the mark. They had tolerated impurity. And so Paul calls the congregation to purge the leaven of sin, lest it leaven the entire lump. And then last week we saw in the first part of chapter 6 that Paul rebukes the church for taking each other to court. They had gotten so off track, so self-centered, that they were taking each other to court before pagan judges seeking to defraud and to rob each other rather than handling their business within the church. Paul chastises them using some biting irony and says that they should instead mediate the disputes within the church rather than seeking worldly mechanisms to demand their rights. And he even pushes it further, reminding them of their calling in Christ, of being even willing to be robbed, even willing to be defrauded for the sake of love and for the sake of the name of Christ. And that leads us to our text tonight, the next three verses, which simultaneously contain some of the hardest truth and yet the sweetest encouragements of any text in the New Testament. Tonight we'll see the impossibly high bar that is set before us. Perfect holiness. Perfect righteousness. But we'll also be reminded of the incredible work of God on our behalf. Not in lowering the bar down, but instead sending Christ to come down. And by his coming down, raising us up. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Hear the word of our Lord for us today. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time. Father in heaven, we need you to work. We need you to act. We need you to speak through your word, to speak to us your truth, to show us more of Christ, and by seeing him more clearly, make us more like Christ, more holy, more righteous, more befitting of a people that have been brought into your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I'd like for us to observe in our text this evening is the destiny to be seen. The destiny to be seen in this text. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is in one sense a very clear statement, but in another sense it provokes several questions. What is this kingdom? What other kingdoms are there? What kingdom am I in? 
How do I get into the kingdom of God? What happens to those outside of God's kingdom? These are important questions, questions to which we ought to have answers if we're to have any peace in this life and in the next life. To put it most simply, the kingdom of God is that realm into which believers now belong. If you're a Christian, you've been made part of the kingdom of God. But that hasn't always been the case. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Just forward a couple of books to Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul here in Ephesians will answer some of our questions. The beginning of Ephesians 2, Paul describes the kingdom or the rule into which each of us is born. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the ruler or the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The whole of mankind, ever since the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, has been born a citizen of the worldly kingdom. We're born with our spiritual passport stamped and our birth certificate says we are property of the king of this age, the ruler of the power of the air. We are born into Satan's dominion, his kingdom. And because of that, we are by nature children of wrath. That's what Paul says in verse 3. We don't come into this world neutral, either to turn out good or evil based upon how we make our decisions. We are born dead under the rule of sin, under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. And so there we are. That's the bad news. That answers some of our questions. But go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says again, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, Paul, you've already told us in Ephesians that we're born unrighteous. That means none of us will inherit the kingdom of God. So, Paul, how is it that you expect us to become citizens of this heavenly kingdom if we are by nature unrighteous? Well, that's a good question. That's indeed the question of questions. That's the question, for example, that Nicodemus brings to Jesus in John chapter 3. If our problem is that we're born in sin, Jesus says that the solution to that problem is to be born a second time, to be born again, to be born of heaven. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus says, well, how can I be born again? Are you telling me I have to go back into my mother's womb? Don't be silly, Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so you must be born a second time. You must be born of the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, good. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting some answers to our questions. So what must we do to be born again? What do I need to do in order to be born of the spirit? Let's figure that out so I can get it done. I want to check that box. But what Nicodemus doesn't understand and what the world doesn't understand is that we have as much control over our spiritual new birth as we did over our fleshly birth. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your, the date of your birth. And so, too, we're not in control of our new birth. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 1 some very important words to us. Speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So those that are born again, born of the Spirit, were born again as children of God, born not of blood. You don't get into God's kingdom because your parents are citizens of that kingdom already. The family tree of God doesn't follow genetics. And this new birth isn't brought about by strength of will, as the text says. It says he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That means you can't muscle your way into heaven. You can't will yourself into the kingdom. To use the language of Ephesians 2, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins, and dead people don't have a will. They're bound by their dead nature. They're enslaved to their sinful nature. So we have a kingdom of God. We're naturally born outside of it, citizens instead of the kingdom of this age, under the ruler of the power of the air, which is Satan. And we are powerless to enter the kingdom by sheer strength of will or by muscle. So what then are we to do? The Bible teaches that while we might be powerless, God is not. We might be dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ is not dead. And we have to remember the previous verse in John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, Christ comes and he lives and dies in order to save for himself a bride, a people, a kingdom of people who though they have no strength in themselves, he chooses to give them life. And their source of life is not anything within them. The source of life is only through him, through Jesus, through union with him, through belief in him, through trusting in him as the only one who can save, through believing that Christ is the king who has come down and acted like a servant, through announcing our citizenship with the kingdom of this world and believing that Christ is the glorious king who can grant us our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And all of this takes is faith. All it takes is resting and trusting in Christ, the faithful king who rules at the cost of his own life. That's the kingdom of God and how we become citizens in it. And that's the kingdom that the unrighteous will never inherit. And so you may be asking, well, how do I know which kingdom I'm in? That's another crucial question. The answer to which will be our second point in the text, a description to be avoided. A description to be avoided. Paul tells us towards the end of verse 9 and verse 10. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul gives us here a description of sins that mark the lives of the unrighteous. He's not talking here about occasional slip-ups or lapses in judgment. He's describing the character of those who have been given over to sin, dominated by sin, and thus evidencing that they are still members of the kingdom of this age. He lists first the sexually immoral, or your translation may say the fornicators. It's from the Greek word porneia again that we discussed a few weeks ago. The context is particularly referring to sexual immorality committed by unmarried persons. Sexual sin outside of the bounds of a marriage covenant. This is what is glorified in movies and in magazines and online. It's even portrayed as normal in our culture at the moment. 
It's being driven down into the curriculums of our schools. It's praised as a healthy way to explore our sexuality and our bodies and our identity. And it's always portrayed as innocent, even harmless. But the truth is that sexual sin is always hiding a hook. Sexual sin is a path that leads to destruction, Scripture says. It brings pain wherever it goes. It promises fun and satisfaction, but it only gives birth to disappointment and to misery. And if unrelented, it keeps us, it bars us from the kingdom of God. Next, Paul lists the idolaters. It's not merely those who bow down to idols, but anyone who worships false gods and worships in false religious systems. It's most explicitly a violation of the first and second of the Ten Commandments. We see in our culture, which prides itself on being rational and scientific and enlightened, which always tries to proclaim the virtues of atheism, and yet it always bows down to all other sorts of idols, serving the creature rather than the creator. It's true in Corinth at the time, and it's just as true today. It's not just the world, though. The church is likewise tempted, like the Corinthians, to adopt the patterns and the values of paganism, pagan worship, accommodating the sinful desires rather than standing firm on the truth revealed in God's word, bowing down at false altars. Next, Paul's list the adulterers, which refers specifically to the sin of a married person who indulges in sexual acts outside of the marriage union. The lifelong marriage of one man to one woman is a creation pattern that God put into place from the very beginning and that he clearly prioritizes through the rest of Scripture. Adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Violating the marriage covenant has horrendous effect upon the marriage, upon the family, upon children, upon the church, and even upon society at large. I have no doubt that the cultural and societal degradation that we currently see is in large part due to the sexual revolution of the last 60 years and the introduction of no-fault divorce laws across our nation. Adultery unchecked destroys families and church communities and destroys nations. Paul then lists men who practice homosexuality, or at least that's how the ESV translates it. Your older translations may have the two Greek words there translated as soft or effeminate men and sodomite. These two terms are very descriptive of both male partners in a homosexual relationship. Both parties are guilty of sexual sin before God. And included within this category of sexual sin are all the other perversions that we see surrounding it. Today we see sex change operations and cross-dressing and gender fluidity and all the other thoughts and deeds that undermine the goodness of God's created pattern of complementarity in marriage. They're acting against God's design, contrary to nature, contrary to their own best interests, contrary to the best interests of their household or their family, contrary to the pattern of righteousness laid out in God's word. And we need to be clear here, there's a lot of confusion that has bubbled up in the last 10 years in the American church surrounding the nature of homosexual sin. The Bible makes absolutely clear that homosexual acts and including the desires that give birth to those acts are sin. They're a violation of God's holy law. I don't need to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus makes clear that our actions overflow from what's in our hearts. And if the actions are sinful, then so too is the desire of the heart. Sexual impurity of whatever kind, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, all of it flows from a perverse and sinful heart. And it violates God's law and God's design. And giving ourselves over to it will bar us from admittance to God's kingdom. 
Paul then moves to list two parallel sins, thievery and greed. We could also include the swindler, which is at the end of the list, which means a robber. These are related terms because greed is the heart-level idolatry, and theft is one of the common manifestations of that greedy heart. The heart that bows to the idol of mammon and the hands that move to worship such a god are clearly evidencing that you are in the wrong kingdom. Next, Paul lists the drunkard, a sin just as prevalent today. This refers to someone who's enslaved to a foreign substance, most explicitly alcohol, but by extension any other substance that causes one to lose self-control, lose temperance or self-governance. Drunkenness enslaves the participant. It harms those around him. It destroys relationships. It undermines a person's own ability to care for themselves or to even retain steady work. It's contrary to how God has designed us to operate. Drunkenness is also a form of self-murder. You are destroying your own body one drink at a time. It's a sin that leaves shockwaves of brokenness in its wake, and it's contrary to the design of God's kingdom. Lastly, Paul lists the revilers, which refers to someone who uses their tongue to destroy. You speak in a way that crushes, that brings despair, that devalues, that belittles, that murders the reputation of others through slander or gossip. This is the sin, along with pride, you see on greatest display in social media, I think. Everyone on social media is quick to speak and slow to listen, jumping into quarrels that are not their own and grabbing the passing dog by his ears, as Proverbs says. Revilers do the opposite of what God does. They invert the way that things ought to be. See, God speaks life and speaks grace with his words. A reviler speaks death and brings despair through their word. So Paul's list here is pretty all-encompassing. In this list, which isn't exhaustive, he's undoubtedly hit every cross-section of the church. We each have felt within us the temptations to do some or all of these things. And many of us have felt the pain of actually acting out on these sinful desires. We've not guarded our purity, the purity of our hearts and our eyes. We've indulged in the lust of the flesh. We've greedily coveted that which didn't belong to us. We've failed to be self-controlled in our appetites and in our passions. See, on our own, we see that we are the category mentioned in verse 9. We are the unrighteous. We were all born that way, bent away from God, bent away from holiness, and bent inward towards selfish desires and enslavement to sin. And some of us feel even worse about this sin because we know we've committed some of these sins after professing faith in Christ. We've committed high-handed rebellion against God, knowing full well that the sin we're committing is indeed sinful and unrighteous. We didn't have pagan ignorance to try and absolve us of our guilt. We knew full well the unrighteousness of our actions, and yet we did them anyway. Whatever our situation, on our own, we are condemned. We are unrighteous. We are outside of the kingdom of God. And that's the bad news. But praise be to God, there is good news in our text. Let's look at the next verse and see our third point, a truth to be cherished. A truth to be cherished. Paul says in verse 11, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Past tense. You were that way. You were part of the kingdom of this world. You were sinful in the passions of your flesh. 
You were greedy and covetous swindlers and thieves. You were idolaters whoring after pagan gods. You were homosexuals and fornicators and adulterers. But praise be to God that he provided a way for us to be saved from the kingdom of this world. The Corinthian believers needed to be reminded of the truth of God's working in their lives. They had been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. They had been made new creatures, as Pastor Jim read to us from 2 Corinthians. And there are two particular encouragements that we should note from this. Two things in particular that stir within our hearts love for God and thankfulness for his work. First, the Corinthian believers were not defined by their past sins, and neither should you be. The Corinthian believers were not defined by their past sin, and neither should you be. They weren't treated by Paul as terrible sexual sinners. They were washed saints. He doesn't chastise them as you greedy idolaters. He calls them holy ones in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2. And in the same way, just because you committed sin in your past, it doesn't mean that you're defined by your past sin. You're not forever branded a murderer. You're not marked out as a dirty sinner or as an adulterer or as a homosexual. You've been washed. You've been made a new creation. Yes, you can and will struggle with remaining sin, but your besetting sin does not define you. What defines you is your relationship to the king of the kingdom, your relationship to Christ, your new citizenship in the kingdom of God. You are not defined by your past sin. But notice also a second encouragement. The Corinthian believers were also not defined by their current sin, and neither should you be. The Corinthian believers were not defined by their current sin, and neither should you be. We know that this church in Corinth had a lot of problems. The church was full of immature, sinful believers. But I want to encourage you to read through this letter and take note of how Paul speaks to the Corinthian believers. How does he speak to these immature believers? He speaks to them on the basis of their profession as followers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he speaks to them in terms of what they are in relation to Jesus and not in relation to their sin. That's important for us to notice. He doesn't call them the sexually corrupt ones. He doesn't say, you worldly fools. Read through the letter. What does he call them? Saints. Holy ones. Brothers. The called ones. The guiltless ones. Washed. That's how Paul views them, in relation to their Savior. And that's how we ought to view ourselves, in relation to our Savior. We don't define ourselves by our sin. We don't say, I'm a gay Christian. We don't say, I'm a greedy Christian. I'm a drunkard Christian. No, we don't define ourselves that way. We define ourselves as Christian, and no additional adjectives are needed in front of that. And when we get our definition, when we get our identity right in our heads, we'll see that we gain both the confidence to fight against our remaining sin, and we get the love to actually engage in that fight. When I remember that I have been made a new creation, that my sin belongs to the old man, that my punishment has been removed, that my condemnation has been replaced, then I'm renewed in my zeal as I battle for holiness. It's because looking backwards to the cross helps me move forward in battle. Looking back to what I've been given helps me to lean forward in the war for holiness. This is what Paul was trying to do, remind them of who they were in Christ Remind them of what they've been given in the gospel so that would renew their efforts in holiness. And what exactly were those things that they have been given in the gospel? Well, that's what Paul spells out in our fourth point. An inheritance to be enjoyed. An inheritance 
to be enjoyed. Look at the rest of verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are some of the sweetest verses in all of the New Testament. There's something particularly comforting about hearing of the gospel in terms of washing, especially when the sins that have committed are sexual sins. Paul here describes the inheritance of the gospel, the blessings of new covenant faith, in terms of blessings that are translated in the past tense. That's significant for us. The work is done. The work is final. You don't have to go around continually washing continually justifying yourself, continually sanctifying yourself. The past tense communicates to us the finality of it, the surety of it. And that's good news for us that are tempted towards doubt and despair. The work is done, and it's been done by Jesus. And Paul unfolds our blessed inheritance in several categories. He highlights several different aspects of our salvation in Jesus Christ. He says first that they were washed which of course evokes Old Testament imagery of cleansing, of purification. There was something that was dirty and defiled and profane, but it has now been cleansed, made fit for use in God's temple, fit for use in God's service. And that's for us. We were defiled by sin. We were made dirty. We were made unfit for holy use. We were profane. But God has come, and through union with Christ, he has made us Clean. He's made us to be born again, born of the Spirit, granted new life in Christ and cleansed of our guilt. By his stripes we have been healed, Isaiah says. Our past has been washed away, never to condemn us again. Nothing can be dug up from your past that would ever make God stop loving you. There's nothing that can separate us from a love of God towards us in Christ Jesus, Scripture says. We're made clean. We're made perfectly lovable and lovely because of the work of the perfectly lovely one dying in our place. But Paul also says that believers are sanctified, which means made holy. And here the past tense refers to the holiness of Christ being counted to us. It's not that we're immediately made innately holy and we stop sinning in this life. People that believe that are totally deceived. That thinking neither matches the New Testament nor the Christian's experience. Rather, Paul is saying that believers have Jesus' own holiness counted to them. It's as if we're born with a huge debt in our righteousness bank account. And Christ comes and he washes away the debt that we owed. But he doesn't just get us back to zero. He doesn't just take away our debt. He positively credits us with his own holiness. He fills up our bank account with his meritorious righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to us so that when God sees us, he doesn't see a bunch of rotten sinners. He sees holy ones. He sees newly washed sons and daughters that that are, are as holy as Jesus Christ himself because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ himself. We are covered in the holy garments of Jesus' own work, his own righteousness. And that's the wonderful news of sanctification in Christ Jesus. And how can he do this? How can God act as if we are holy when we just said that we're not inherently holy? That's because of what Paul says next. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Justified means to be declared righteous. It's courtroom imagery. The judge has declared believers to be righteous. But how is that so? We've already said we're born sinners. 
and we continue to battle with sin, even after we come to faith, how can we be declared righteous? Well, that's the very heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. We can be declared righteous because another is standing in our place. We can be justified because Christ has come and he has taken the punishment that we had earned for ourselves, which was death, and he died in our place. He bore all of the wrath. He suffered all of the consequences. But not only that, we have been given his righteousness. It's been credited to our account, as we've already seen. So that means when God looks at you, he doesn't see a dirty sinner. He doesn't see a long list of faults and failings from your past. He sees you as a perfectly spotless son. He sees you as Christ's own righteousness wrapped around you. That's been imputed to you. Your sin is gone and Christ's holiness has been given to you. That's why God can say that you are righteous. Because of the sacrifice in Jesus in your place. Which is why he says it the way he does in the end of the verse. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that these blessings are yours. No other name can grant you such a salvation. No other name can give you such peace. Such satisfaction. No other name can soothe a guilty and weary soul. Allah cannot give you this. Muhammad can't give you this. Nor Brahma, nor Joseph Smith. Nor can the success of this world. Nor the praise of men. Nor all the riches of this age. Only Jesus Christ can offer you such a blessing. And how does he give us these blessings? Well, we see that at the end of the verse. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. It's the Spirit who grants us such blessings. Just like we don't get into the kingdom by straining our way in, so too do we not strain ourselves by fleshly effort into holiness. It's not as if we gain heaven by the Spirit, but then we gain holiness by work of the flesh. Every bit of the Christian life, from washing to justification to sanctification, all of it is of grace in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we trust in God. We lean on his word. We submit to his will. We prayerfully seek the Holy Spirit's help as we continue to grow in our battle for holiness. Brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in Christ, then be encouraged by your inheritance in Christ. And let it propel you on in your battle for holiness. Don't let the sins of this kingdom, of this age, take over. Strive in battle by the strength of the Holy Spirit for a holiness befitting a people of God in God's own kingdom. And if you haven't yet come to faith by Christ, then know that you stand outside of the kingdom of God. But also know that the king of this kingdom has extended to you an invitation. He has invited all that would listen to hear of his grace and to come to him by faith. Receive tonight this invitation and you too can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. You can be a beneficiary of this inheritance that's waiting for you in heaven imperishable and undefiled don't wait this offer will expire don't be caught outside of his kingdom on the day of judgment trust in christ and be made holy in his name amen let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your grace we thank you for your mercy we thank you that we indeed can be washed that we can be sanctified that we can be justified because of the faithfulness of christ in our stead Make us this kind of holy people. In Christ's name, amen.